Uh, my name is Charles Wilkins, uh, professor of history here at Colorado College. And it is uh, my pleasure and my honor uh, to introduce to you uh, Dr. Uh, Imad Mustafa, uh, Amer a Syrian ambassador to the United States. Um, uh, prior to his appointment as ambassador, uh, Dr. Mustafa was dean of the faculty of information technology at the University of Damascus and secretary general of the Arab School on Science and Technology. He is a co-founder of the network of Syrian scientists, technologists, and innovators abroad, known by the acronym NOSTIA, and he is an active consultant to several international and regional organizations on science and technology in the Middle East. Dr. Mustafa is a versatile writer with a long list of publications in English and Arabic, and he has appeared in numerous U.S., British, Syrian, Arab, and international TV news programs and shows. You might have seen him on CNN quite recently, and has presented a large number of public lectures in various Arab and American cities. He holds a Ph.D. in computer science. It is my pleasure to introduce him, and please join me in welcoming Dr. Mustafa. Thank you, Charles. Um, um, I, I want to be using this, all right? I will use my... Can we push this? Sorry, I'm, I'm a troublemaker. Okay. Is that all right for you? Can you see now? Good, good. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good afternoon. Thank you very much for uh, uh, inviting me to speak at Colorado College. Actually, this is my first visit to Colorado, and I am humbled. Thank you for the warm reception. I, I just uh, had uh, uh, lunch with President Celeste, and he was very kind with me. Actually, he did something that it, uh, I, I, I have been trying to do for the past two years, and I failed. He upgraded the position of Syria from a rogue state to a roguish state. He, <laughs> he, he, just said, he just told me that, after all, we're not that rogue. And he decided that we, can, we might be a roguish state, which is very good. I mean, this is an achievement that I will report to Damascus this afternoon. Um, let me start by telling you the following. Because, as you know, we are a roguish state, not a rogue state anymore. Usually, I, I, what happens is the following. I travel a lot across the United States, and I, I, I give presentations and lectures at World Affairs Councils, political think tanks, universities, and I end up, because of the situation in the Middle East, with tough questions. And because these quest tough questions make my life uh, difficult, I, I devised a technique to distract my audience. So what I will do... <laughs> uh, what I will do is... I will run this slideshow. It's pictures from Syria. What I want you really to do is to focus all your attention on this slideshow and <laughs> ignore what I would be saying. Okay? I think you will enjoy it more than hearing what I would be telling you. And by the end, you are welcome either to ask me questions about the pictures you have seen, or if you insist, I will address all your questions about the situation in the Middle East. <laughs> Syria is a very small country. You can barely see it, as you can notice. <laughs> However, it is one of the oldest countries in the world. 
Having said this, it's also a very young state. Uh, the modern uh, state of Syria is, is only 50 years old. Uh, we happen to live in a troubled region, the Middle East. And today in the Middle East, we have two major crises, the one in Iraq and the one that uh, concerns the ongoing Arab-Israeli conflict. But also, Syria went through a, a third crisis that is being resolved today and uh, would not be described as a major crisis anymore, which is the Lebanese uh, issue that I would like to discuss with you this afternoon. What I will do today is I will give you our uh, uh, the Syrian version of the events in the Middle East, our perception of what has happened there, our interpretation. If this uh, contradicts some of your con perceptions, I, I, I do apologize. Please do remember, I'm in an awkward position. I happen to be the representative of Syria, so I have to uh, tell you our viewpoint, and I would love to hear from you at the end of this presentation. Um, let me start first with the Iraqi issue, and then I will move to the Arab-Israeli conflict and end with the Lebanese issue. Um, um, today, Syria is facing uh, difficult, difficult uh, times and it's, uh, with its, uh, concerning its relations with the United States of America. And believe me, this is not an easy choice for any country in the world. No country in the world can afford to have bad relations with the United States government. Because the United States happened to be, if you don't know this, then I have to tell you this, happened to be the world unique superpower, the most powerful nation that the history of mankind has ever known. So it is not easy for a tiny country like mine really to have problems with the United States. But sometimes, what can we do? We did not choose our geography. Um, once you decided that you wanted to invade and occupy Iraq, using our paradigm or using your paradigm, liberate and bring democracy and prosperity to Iraq, we immediately, we immediately felt that uh, there would be troubles ahead. Let me go a little bit back in history and remind you that relations between Syria and the United States were not that bad throughout the last half century. Actually, it is a fact that every single US president did the visit the capital city of Syria, Damascus, starting with President Richard Nixon and then every other president till President Clinton, who came in an official visit to Syria. And the mere fact that the President of the United States is visiting Syria at least can prove to you that we had a, a good working relationship with Syria, but with the United States. It's even more important to tell you the following. Immediately after the tragic events of September 11, Syria and the United States lived a short honeymoon, and I will explain to you why. While every country in the world sent a letter of condolences to the American government and the American people because of the tragic events of September 11, Syria did not only do this. We actually initiated contact with, contacts with the U.S. security agencies and told them the following. We in Syria have been fighting against extremist, fundamentalist, Islamic movements in the Middle East for the past 20 years. They are our own sworn enemies. Hmm? And we have a wealth of information about those groups that we are more than happy to provide you with. And we actually have done this. And according to an official letter sent by Secretary Powell to the government of Syria, hmm, Secretary Powell noted that Syria has provided the United States with, quote unquote, 
actionable information that helped save American lives. Actually, we helped abort two planned operations against US interests. One was in Bahrain, and one was to take place in Canada. Those were the, the, the golden days in the relations between the United States and Syria. However, things deteriorated dramatically once we in Syria realized that the US government was serious about its plans to invade and occupy Iraq. Why? We in Syria, we have had the worst possible relations with Saddam Hussein throughout the past 30 years. We did not even have diplomatic exchanges with the regime of Saddam Hussein. Our troops actually were fighting next to your troops in the first Gulf War when Saddam Hussein occupied Kuwait and our troops participated in the world coalition to help liberate Kuwait. But the problem this time was the following. We thought that the United States didn't really understand what the stakes were and what, what, was, what really lies in this, in this uh, uh, in, in you, let me describe it as a new adventure that will take place in Iraq. Um, I remember, because as I have said before, I was uh, personally a member of the Syrian team that discussed the issue of Iraq with our American counterparts prior to the war in Iraq. We came here and we met with top American officials, and we told them that we oppose this war on Iraq for the following reasons. This is prior to the war, actually. First, we told them that our Middle East has already had its uh, fair share of troubles, wars, and violence, and we did not need yet another war in our region. That's too much for us. Second, we told them to the face that probably you do not understand really the nature of the Middle East, and we believe that for you to occupy Iraq will steer anti-Western sentiments and fuel extremism and terrorism in the Middle East. And we told them, we told them, actually I remember exactly we told them, we believe that you will be unleashing forces that you don't even understand their nature by invading Iraq. And we said, for as far as we are concerned, we think that for you to occupy Iraq, would be equivalent to opening a Pandora's box of woes and evils. Uh, needless to say, all our arguments were, were uh, uh, simply dismissed. We were actually mocked in the face. They told us at that time that probably we don't know anything about our region. They told us this to our faces. They said to us, watch what will happen within two months of our liberation of Iraq. Iraq will become a model that will inspire the whole Arab world a model of prosperity and democracy. And believe us, within two months of our liberation of Iraq, every other Arab country would be looking at the situation in Iraq and wishing that the same would happen to them. I'm not joking, I was there. I'm not telling you a story I read in a newspaper. I'm telling you about high-level meetings that I was personally witness to. What has happened has happened. And today you are in Iraq. And the situation in Iraq is as bad as you know. And we in Syria are paying a dear price for our principled opposition to this war in Iraq. And one of, I mean, there are too many, too many uh, 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 results and sub-results to this war. And if I will enumerate them, it will take the whole, the whole time allocated to this presentation. But uh, at, at least I have to remind you, we are neighbors to Iraq, and what is happening there is affecting us. Today we look at the unprecedented levels of violence and bloodshed in Iraq. Probably you have heard what has happened in a mosque today in Iraq. And we fear in Syria that Iraq might, God forbid, 
spiral down towards civil war. And if this happens, Iraq might disintegrate. And if this happens, it will have a domino effect throughout the whole Middle East, including my Syria. Hmm? If you think that Iraq has a, a diverse uh, co uh, society, well, we are 10 times more diverse in Syria than the Iraqis are. And uh, we, we, we have been managing to live harmoniously, all the constituents of the Syrian society, together for the past 50 years. We, we fear of what is happening today in Iraq. This is only one aspect, but as I have said, there are too many other aspects. As an example, we consider the Iraqis as our brothers and sisters, and we look at the unprecedented uh, uh, level of violence, of death, of destruction that's happened, and of bloodshed that's happening today in Iraq, and we feel terrible, we feel bad about what's happening there. It's not only the number of your troops that are being killed in Iraq, it's also the number of Iraqis that are being killed there. But please do not misunderstand me. As far as I am concerned, every single loss of every single human life in Iraq is a loss to all of humanity, regardless of their nationality. American troops, Iraqis, the whole, the, the whole scenario there is a terrible scenario, and nobody is gaining anything. The United States is not gaining anything, and Iraq is not gaining anything. I will give you just one example of the too many examples that has happened in Iraq. As you all know, Iraq is predominantly a Muslim country, but there is a small Iraqi Christian minority. This Christian minority is part and parcel of the Iraqi national heritage. It's a part of their history. But because of the bloodshed and of the violence, violence and insecurity, the Iraqi Christians are fleeing Iraq in huge numbers. Today in Syria, we have 60,000 Iraqi Christians that have escaped Iraq and have no plans to return there because their churches were destroyed and, and uh, explosives were put on, off in their churches and, and, and they, don't, they fear for their lives. And as, just as a minor example of the results of this war, we, we, we tell ourselves in Syria, Iraq will, will lose one of, its, uh, uh, the cons one of the constituents of its national heritage. Forget about the looting of the Baghdad Museum, forget about... Uh, the massive emigration of professionals from Iraq, medical doctors, engineers, university professors, are leaving Iraq in huge numbers today. And they, they are resettling elsewhere. They don't want to return to a country that is uh, ravaged by, by, by this unprecedented level of violence. Um, having said this, I'm not here to you know, point fingers and blame. What I'm trying to say is we have a situation that is a very messy situation today in Iraq. And there is no clear exit strategy. But what we believe in Syria, at least, is that your presence in Iraq should come to a, an end. You can't continue there forever. The violence is not receding. Actually, it's on the increase. Hmm? And the, the, the death toll is on the increase on daily basis. And, and we can't understand what are you actually doing there in Iraq. I do apologize if you sincerely believe that you are bringing freedom and democracy to Iraq, because I, I have no doubts that if you believe this is happening, well, you are sincere about it. But this is our region. Those are our brothers and sisters. Those are, uh, this is a part of our world. And we are extremely unhappy with what's happening there. At, at least, this is our side of the story. Um, in a nutshell, our position towards the situation in Iraq is the following. We were against this war from the very early beginning. But now that it has happened, let us look for a, a, an intelligent strategy to get out from Iraq. Then there is no other solution. Uh, claiming that we cannot leave Iraq as long as violence 
continues there is equivalent to saying we will never leave Iraq because the Iraqi resistance is saying we will never stop fighting against the Americans as long as they are in our country. And it's a catch-22 situation. It's a vicious cycle. They will not stop fighting against you because you're in their country. And you will never leave because they are fighting. I'll move now to the uh, second uh, 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 part of my presentation. Probably I should have told you this at the beginning. I will try to be as brief and succinct as possible to leave you more ample time for the Q&A session because I think this will allow us to interact in a, in a better way. Um, um, I, I will discuss now the Arab-Israeli conflict, but I will in particularly focus on the Syrian dimension of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, let me remind you of a fact that is sometimes forgotten here in the United States. Today, Israel happens to occupy a part of Syria, the Golan. Today in Syria, we have 250,000 Syrians living as refugees in Syria, dreaming of the day they can go back to their villages, to their houses, and to their farms that they were driven out of uh, during the Six-Day War in 1967. But also we have in, in Golan today 128,000 Syrians dreaming of the day uh, they can uh, rejoin their mother country, Syria. They are living under occupation without any rights whatsoever. They cannot even, they do not even have the right to dig a well in their own farms. While a huge number of Russian immigrants are coming to the Golan from Russia hmm, and building settlements in the Golan with, with rights, enjoying rights and privileges that the, the, the people of Golan cannot even dream of. This is the situation as it is. Having said this, it does not mean that the conflict between Syria and Israel cannot be resolved. What I really want to tell you, my message is the following. Peace can be achieved between Syria and Israel. Actually, it was on the verge of being signed twice in the past 15 years. And this is a story that, is des that deserves to be heard. Once Itzhak Rabin, the late prime minister of Israel, accepted the, what we call in the Middle East the principle of land for peace and sent us a message through the American uh, U.S. envoy to the Middle East, Dennis Ross, telling us that he is willing to consider the land for peace principle as basis for negotiations between Syria and Israel, we were at the beginning a little bit skeptical about this, but Rabin put this in writing and deposited this with President Clinton. It became the famous Rabin deposit in which he states that Israel is willing to accept the principle of land for peace for the first time ever in the history of the conflict between the Arabs and the Israelis. Once this was done, Syria and Israel immediately engaged in a peace process. And surprisingly enough, Almost all obstacles vanished in a very short time. And we were there on the verge of signing a peace treaty between Syria and Israel for the first time ever. But what has happened, as you probably know, is that Itzhak Rabin got assassinated by an Israeli extreme, uh, extremist from the right wing. And of course, we, we worried in Syria for the prospects of the peace process because the peace treaty was not yet signed. But Shimon Peres, who became the Prime Minister of Israel, sent us a message through Dennis Ross, of course, telling us 
that he was not only willing to continue what Rabin has started, but actually he desired to accelerate the pace of the peace process between Syria and Israel. He really wanted to finalize a peace agreement between both countries. And this actually happened. We ended up with a draft copy of a, 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 a peace agreement between Syria and Israel that only needed to be signed and approved by both countries. Then something happened. Shimon Peres, who succeeded Tzhak Rabin, decided to capitalize on the sympathy the Labour Party has won in Israel because of the tragic assassination of Tzhak Rabin. He decided to call for early elections that were not mandatory. And we were in Syria. We sent him a message telling him, sign first the peace agreement, and then go to your elections. But he wouldn't. He went to elections, and he lost. And Benjamin Netanyahu became the prime minister of Israel. And the very first day Benjamin Netanyahu became prime minister of Israel, he announced publicly the following. He said, I am not interested in the principle of land for peace. I believe in the principle of peace for peace. End of the quote. What Benjamin Netanyahu was trying to say is the following. Syria wants peace. Syria gets peace, but never their Golan. They will never get back the Golan. And for three years, the peace process completely stalled in the Middle East. And not a single exchange between Syria and Israel took place in those three years. And that was a missed historic opportunity. But then Ehud Barak became the prime minister of Israel. For the second time, he sent us a message telling us, once more through Dennis Ross, that he is willing to re resume negotiations based on the principle of land for peace. And, but he wanted a different approach to a Syrian-Israeli peace agreement. He wanted bilateral committees to address every issue between Syria and Israel. And he got what he wanted. So we ended up with a, 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 a Syrian-Israeli bilateral committee discussing water resources, uh, uh, borders markup, mutual security arrangements on both sides of the borders, diplomatic and trade relations between Syria and Israel once the peace treaty is finalized, and all other issues. And each committee reached a partial peace agreement between Syria and Israel. And for the second time, for the second time, we believe that peace were there for the taking. Parallel to this, Barak was negotiating a final peace settlement with the Palestinians. And those were times of great hopes in the Middle East, where everybody believed that, you know, the historic conflict between the Arabs and the Israelis is almost reaching its end. But for the second time, this exactly, history has repeated itself. I, I really need to remind you of the following. What I am not, I'm telling you right now is not the Syrian versions of events. Those events are documented in a book published by Dennis Ross, the United States Special Envoy to the Middle East, in a book entitled The Missing Peace. And they are also seconded by President Clinton himself in his memoirs. But also, Marlene, uh, Madeleine Albright also has has supported this version of the events about the collapse of the peace agreement between Syria and Israel in her, in her biography. What happened is Barak started getting negative results in polls and, and surveys of public opinion in Israel. And he, he worried a little bit. And he told Dennis Ross, I might lose the elections if I will sign a peace treaty with Syria. And I don't want to 
lose the election. So I might sacrifice the peace treaty with Syria. So he stopped the peace process. He went to elections, and he lost the elections. And he ended up losing both peace with Syria and the elections. The, week Ariel, the first week Ariel Sharon became prime minister of Israel, he went to the Knesset. And on the records there, on the record, he said the following. He said, I am not interested in resuming peace talks with Syria. I know the price Syria wants for its peace with us. They want back the Golan. I am not willing to give Syria back the Golan. And for the second time, prospects for peace vanished and evaporated in our region. However, having said this, what I'm trying to tell you is the following. This does not mean that peace could not be achieved between Syria and Israel. There is one minor problem that should be resolved. During those days, the United States government administration was wholeheartedly engaged in the peace process. The American administration was really pushing the Arabs and the Israelis to reach a peace agreement. And you have to remember that the United States of America is the only country in the world that has influence and leverage on Israel. The only country that can really tell the Israelis whether you like it or not, you have to sit with your neighbors and reach a peace agreement. You have to allow the Palestinians to have a sovereign, free state, independent state, just like every nation under the sun, just like the, the, all, all nations on the earth. But this administration is not interested at all, at all, in, in sponsoring or, or helping or brokering a peace agreement between this the Arabs and Israel. And as far as we are concerned, in our Middle East, we look at the level of engagement of the previous US administrations, particularly in the, the days of President Bush Sr. and President Clinton, and compare them to the total, total lack of any, any engagement of this administration in our area. And I mean, not really total lack. They are engaged in Iraq, but they are not helping the Arabs and Israelis reach a peace agreement between them. And, and we missed those olden days. Uh, at, one, at one meeting uh, with a political think tank in Washington, D.C., the CSIS, uh, uh, scholars from the Center for Strategic and International Studies asked me what would be the single one thing that Syria really wants from the United States. If, if you really wanted to ask the United States to do something for Syria, what would you ask the United States to do? And I told them, we really don't need anything from the United States. No financial aid, no military assistance, nothing. We only need one thing from the United States. Help us reach a peace agreement with Israel. You need to go back and play the same role you used to play a decade ago, five years before, I mean. This is the only thing we expect from the United States. And in a way, this is your moral responsibility. With this power, with this wealth, with this status that you have reached in, the, in, in humanity, you do have a moral responsibility. You have to help the rest of the world uh, find solutions to their problems. And it will reflect positively on you. It's not only an altruistic political uh, 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 thing to do. It will reflect positively on you and on your status as the leader of the world. I will stop here as well. And of course, I will welcome all your questions about the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict. And I will move now to the third issue, which has to do with uh, Lebanon. Is this the second round, or is it still the first round? First round, very good. 
I hope, I hope those pictures were really distracting you. Uh, the reason, the true reason I put these pictures is that uh, I'm trying to put a face on Syria. Many people, I, I learned that when I meet with American, uh, with my American audience, I, I end up with, with this feeling that they really don't know anything about the country I'm talking about. And I thought these pictures will help a little bit. Um, so, uh, but then I noticed that these pictures are distracting my audience and I, <laughs> Uh, I, I, I discovered that they are really helping me evade the tough questions. Now I will discuss the Lebanese issue, which is uh, not as grave and as complicated as the uh, Iraqi and the uh, uh, Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, some of you don't know this, but it's a, a brief introduction to Lebanon. Lebanon went through three bloody civil wars in the past century. The last civil war that the Lebanese went through ended up with killing 140,000 Lebanese civilians and the destruction of, of their capital city, Beirut. And at one point, at one point, there was no way to end this, this uh, uh, mad war had it not been for the Syrian troops who entered Lebanon. When Syrian troops entered Lebanon, we entered Lebanon to end the civil war. And it is important to remind you that the whole world community supported Syria when Syria entered Lebanon. The United States of America approved of our presence in Lebanon, as well as the Soviet Union of the time, and the European community and the Arab League. And I can claim that we did a good job in Lebanon at that point. We succeeded in ending the civil war. And we, we helped the Lebanese rebuild all their national institutions, including uh, the, their army and their police force. And the Lebanese, once more, for the second time, miraculously rebuilt their capital city, Beirut. Beirut used to be the, the pearl of the Middle East in the 60s and 70s. And then it was completely destroyed and demolished and burned during the Civil War. But the Lebanese, in the past 15 years, succeeded in rebuilding Beirut. Today you go once more to Beirut, and it is, again, a fascinating city. Once more, it deserves the title of the pearl of the Middle East. And in a way, of course, the Lebanese did this. We did not do this for them. But at least you can give us the credit that we ended a civil war, and while our troops were there in Lebanon, they were able to rebuild their country, their economy, and their national institutions. Having said this, and to be candid and honest with you, we committed a, a, a major mistake. We overstayed our original welcome in Lebanon. It's not easy for me to admit this, but this is the truth, and I am just... Uh, telling you exactly what has happened. Syria should have withdrawn its troops from Lebanon two years after signing the Taif peace agreement that ended the civil war in Lebanon. But we enjoyed it there, we stayed there. I will tell you why. It, it's, it's hurtful to say it, but I will tell you why. Because corrupt officers from the Syrian army went into partnership with corrupt Lebanese politicians, and, and, and they were enjoying their corrupt deals in Lebanon. The civil war has stopped. Lebanon became peaceful. We should not have stayed there. However, to make things short, the United Nations Security Council issued Resolution 1559 demanding that all foreign troops withdraw from Lebanon. Our troops withdrew from Lebanon. We complied totally with this resolution. And today, there is not a single soldier in Lebanon. 
We did this in an organized way, and we withdrew from our troops from Lebanon. What I want to tell you is the following. Not a single bullet was shot at the Syrian troops after we ended the civil war in Lebanon. We were not exchanged in any bloody battles with the Lebanese while we were there. And when we withdrew our troops from Lebanon, it was a peaceful withdrawal. Most importantly, I need to tell you the following. While we were in Lebanon, we never annexed a single square inch of the Lebanese territories into Syria. We never uprooted a single olive tree in Lebanon. We never demolished a single Lebanese house. And most importantly, we never built a wall deep into the Lebanese territories. And when it was time for us to leave, I admit that we were so late in accepting that it was time for us to leave. We left peacefully and without any bloodshed or, or problems. However, something tragic has happened in Lebanon that caused us more headaches than we ever anticipated. The horrendous assassination of the former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafiq al-Hariri. The very same day that Rafiq al-Hariri was assassinated in Lebanon, the very same day the US administration immediately accused Syria of this horrendous crime. I don't want to go into a debate about telling you we did not do this, no, you did this. What I want to tell you is the following. We in Syria consider the assassination of Rafiq al-Hariri as the worst blow that has ever befallen Syria. No other incident, incident in our modern history has caused us more damage than the assassination of Rafiq al-Hariri. Because this assassination has allowed our enemies and adversaries to use it to, to pressure, exert tremendous pressures on Syria. And this has actually happened. However, what, what I'm trying to tell you is the following. Regardless of the accusations and regardless of the refutations, you, as, as, as logical people, you have to think of it this way. There is today an ongoing investigation in the assassination of Rafiq al-Hariri. And this investigation is being conduct conducted by the United Nations. It is considered to be the largest criminal investigation in the history of mankind. 400 forensic scientists, criminal investigators, uh, 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 prosecutors, uh, experts from all, all uh, disciplines and fields are investigating this crime. And it is in our national interest in Syria for this investigation to succeed and actually reveal the truth about the assassination of Hariri. Because it's the only way, the only way for us to be vindicated and exonerated and to prove to the world that the government of Syria has had nothing to do with this crime. I can visit every university here in the United States, and President Assad can repeat the same at every interview with every news channel in the world. It will do us no good. The only way for us out from this dilemma is for this investigation to reveal the truth about the assassination of Rafiq al-Hariri. This is why we are committed to cooperate with this investigation. And this is why it is in our national interest in Syria uh, for this investigation to succeed and to reveal the truth about this assassination. I think I, I, I should stop here. This is uh, already being um, good. Uh, thank you very much. I will stop here. As I promised you, uh, uh, I will make a, a brief uh, presentation. And this will leave us more time to uh, the Q&A session. Thank you very much.
Let's start with you, sir. Yes, yes. You probably we have twenty different languages in Syria, but Arabic is the prevalent language. We have Armenians, we have Circassians, we have Kurds, we have uh, uh, Albanians, we have Turkomans in Syria. But also, this is sort of funny. Um, do you remember a film that was controversial here in the United States, The Passion of Jesus Christ? Regardless of whether I approve of the message of this film or not, or of the graphic violence of this film or not, but there is one thing that is very important about this film. The language used in that film, do you rem remember? It's Aramaic. In Syria, we still have towns and villages that still speak Aramaic, the language of Jesus Christ. In Ma'lula, if you would go to a barber shop, you would ask him to cut your hair in Aramaic. And this is so unique across the whole world. It's Christian scholars from across the world go to Ma'lula today to study Aramaic. And it is the language spoken in the streets and in the houses in Ma'lula. So yes, I would tell you we have too many languages in Syria, but Arabic is the uh, most prevailing language. Another question? Sir. Um, this is a complicated question. Uh, let me remind you of the following fact. Syria, Syria recognizes fully and, and without any hesitation the sovereignty and the independence of Lebanon. We have no territorial claims towards Lebanon. Um, Lebanon has been throughout its history upon, this is a reality, you know this, if you know the history of Lebanon, the days of, uh, you know, the French mandate and then uh, the days of uh, Camille Shamoun and then the, the, the era of Abdel Nasser has always been a, 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 um, a pawn in the hands of the big regional players. And yes, many times Syria feared that uh, Lebanon can be used by Israel, and it has been used by Israel in 18, 1982 to, 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 as a, a conduit to, to, to Syria because if the Israelis would cross through Lebanon, the distance between Damascus and Beirut uh, is, is something like uh, um, 100 kilometers less, I, I would say, sorry, um, 100 miles, I would say, 100 miles. So it's so easy to go through Lebanon and enter into the capital city of Syria. Having said this, uh, whether we like it or not, our presence in Lebanon became so controversial by the end of our presence there, and it is in our, it, it has become in our national interest that we withdraw from Lebanon. So we have withdrawn. Do we think that Lebanon uh, can survive as a state and can protect, uh, protect its uh, integrity and uh, its sovereignty? Yes, provided the Lebanese save themselves from their uh, uh, sect sectarian uh, uh, ideologies and, and uh, sectarian uh, policies. Uh, as long as they continue thinking in, in terms of uh, Druzy and Shia and, and uh, Maroni and Orthodox and Catholic, this, this, 
this upheaval, will, political upheaval and political instability will continue in Lebanon. The Lebanese has to face the reality. They need to build Lebanon on a modern basis. But today, uh, of course, Lebanon, in a way or another, is a democracy, but it is a, a sectarian democracy. Shiites will only vote for Shiite members of the parliament. Maronites will only vote for Maronite members of the parliament. Sunnis for Sunnis. And, and this is a, a, a distorted sort of democracy, of representative democracy. But this is the case of Lebanon. And this was the cause of the last three civil wars in Lebanon, or at least the last two civil wars in Lebanon. Okay, And today, you look at the situation in Lebanon, and it is volatile. Uh, at least, I think, I think, and this is the prevailing wisdom today in Syria, that the Lebanese have learned a lot from their last bloody war, and they will not, will not spiral down towards yet another civil war. Having said this, you look at the political bickering and the pit, how petty the political uh, sectarian rifts are, and you fear for the future of Lebanon. So I would say this is a challenge for the Lebanese. They want to evolve into a, a, a really a modern country. They need to stop thinking in, 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 in factional and sectarian terms. You don't have to. Uh, I've been in Syria twice in the last eight years. And I Did you like the picture? Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful country. You can go. I went once when one of the goers went, so I came back. I was there in October. And uh, while we were in uh, Damascus, we uh, met with someone who told us that the United States government is trying to destabilize the Syrian government. And the Syrians had asked for, had offered to cooperate with U.S. Border Patrol, to have joint patrols, had asked for night vision goggles and things like that, and that the State Department and um, uh, the Pentagon, no, and the Pentagon had approved it, but the White House would not turn on. So that's one question. I, I don't know if you care to comment on that, being an ambassador, but that is one feeling that people have. And then the second thing, which you didn't touch on at all, is you are under an embargo, are you not? Yes, we are. And it uh, U.S. embargo. Development. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, Thank you for your, your twofold question. Uh, it is an important question. Uh, yes, yes, this is a, a very important story that is not well known here in the United States. Immediately after the occupation of Iraq or the liberation of Iraq, according to how you would like to describe it, uh, uh, two months after this, top U.S. officials started appearing on major U.S. media channels and claiming that the violence that's happening today in Iraq is happening because infiltrators are coming through Syria and to Iraq to kill American soldiers. And of course, we worried a lot in Syria because we thought that this was a very dangerous sign. At that time, there was an ongoing discussion in certain circles here in Washington, D.C., particularly among the neoconservatives, whether Syria should be next or not. And of course, we worried a lot in Syria. And I was instructed by my government to tell the U.S. administration that this is untrue. It is not really happening. We are not allowing infiltrators to go through these borders. But, of course, uh, all our protestations were, were met with deaf ears, and, um, and the l campaign of accusations against Syria started to, to even uh, intensify. 
And uh, regardless of whether we are doing this or not, it's unimportant. Who cares today if Iraq ever had a WMD arsenal or not? Your troops went there. And we really worried in Syria. And I'm being honest with you. I have shown you how small Syria is. And the United States is a very powerful country. And for us to allow infiltrators to go through the Syrian-Iraqi borders to kill your sons and daughters is, 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 is mad. I mean, even if, we, even if we hated you, and we do not hate you, we do not consider ourselves an enemy nation to the United States. Even if we hated you, we wouldn't do this because we will bring death and destruction upon us if we were doing this. It's as simple as this. If you are willing to kick the tiger in its back, then you have to be prepared to deal with its teeth. Who wants to deal with the teeth of the American tiger? So I was instructed by my government personally to meet top officials at the Pentagon and the State Department and tell them the following. Look, this is not really happening, and we are worried about this, but I'm not here today to tell you this is not happening and to refute accusations. Our message to you is the following. Syria is willing to cooperate with the United States toward, towards securing the Syrian-Iraqi borders, and we are willing to do whatever it takes in order to do this. We are open to all your suggestions. We can start by suggesting, as you have just mentioned, uh, 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 running tri trilateral patrols across these borders. I mean Syrian, American, and Iraqi, uh, sharing information, exchanging uh, intelligence between the Syrians and the Americans about these borders, uh, filled meetings between officers from both sides of the borders, whatever it takes. We also explained to them that if this is happening, it might be happening, not because it is we are willing for this to happen, but this is desert porous borders, 500 kilometers of desert, sand, you know, and you are the world most powerful country on earth, and you can't control your Mexican borders. So at least, at least, we are showing you how willing we are to engage with you. And we explained some of our problems to them. As an example, we told them, you have the best, most advanced technology in the world. Why don't you use your technology to stop infiltrators? However, we are willing to work with you. But we need some uh, personnel detection systems, some night vision goggles to really secure and improve the uh, quality of, of securing these borders. The United States categorically refused to engage with us, but they kept on repeating the same accusations. And our worries started to, to, to really uh, mount up. And we did whatever we can do from our side. We increased the number of border guards on the Syrian-Iraqi borders by tenfold. Uh, and you have to remember these are, are remote areas without any villages from the Syrian side, with incredibly harsh conditions, desert conditions, terribly hot in the day, extremely cold in the nighttime, but yet we sent thousands of Syrian uh, border guards there that never were posted there in our modern history between Syria and Iraq. We installed barbed wire, we built sand barriers, we, we did what we can do. The accusations continued and continued. Then we started inviting the International Diplomatic Corp in Damascus, based in Damascus, European diplomats and other diplomats to go and visit this border area and show them that at least this is what we are doing. But then, if you have noticed in the past two or three months, these accusations started to, to disappear. We're not hearing the same level of accusations against Syria anymore. And I will tell you why. First, because this story was not true in the first place, claiming that the violence that is happening in Iraq is happening because Syria is sending mujahideen into Iraq is silly. 
First, we don't allow Mujahideen to go into Iran. We consider extremists who want to go and fight and kill and get killed our own enemies. And we believe that if they go and try to kill people in Iraq uh, and then survive and come back to Syria, they will do the same in Syria itself. We don't play games with those Mujahideen, first. Second, we believe, we believe that uh, the violence that's happening in Iraq is at, at, le at least the part that is against the Americans is a purely Iraqi issue. We call it resistance, you call it terrorism, it's up to you, I'm not going to dispute this with you, but I need to remind you of one fact. Throughout the history of mankind, and everywhere in the world, when a country would send its troops to another country, the local people will not be happy about this, and they tend to fight against those foreigners. They would call them occupiers. Of course, the foreigners will describe themselves as uh, liberators, but the locals would call them as occupiers. And probably they are misled and they are ignorant and they do not understand the noble uh, motives of those liberators. But this is the reality. And they start fighting against those guys. You would call them terrorists. They would call themselves freedom fighters. It's, it's a debate. But Syria has nothing to do with this. It is a purely Iraqi-American issue. We were used, at least this is what we believe in, we were used as a scapegoat for the failed American policies in Iraq. You end up with problems in Iraq, you accuse Syria. This is unfair. In the first hand, we went, we met with you, we told you, please don't go there. You will create more money problems than the problems you will resolve. You, you mocked us in the face, and now look at the situation. And now you are asking us to, 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 to carry the burden of this war. But what happened is the following. More and more top United States military officers in the field in Iraq were saying that they believe that 95% of the insurgency in Iraq is led by Iraqis. And only probably, according to their estimates, 5% are, is, being, is happening by non-Iraqis. Our theory in Syria is the following. Yes, there are non-Iraqi elements in Iraq particularly those who follow Al-Zarqawi and Al-Qaeda. Usually, amazingly enough, they don't target the Americans. Do you know who do they target? They're the Iraqis, hmm? because of their fanatic approach to things. Most of the, the war that's happening between the Iraqis and the Americans is happening between the Iraqi resistance and the Americans. Most of the explosives that are being put off in mosques, killing civilians in Iraq, is being done by those extremists that are our own enemies. So what happened is the culmination of this story is the following. Three or four months ago, the US military in Iraq conducted an operation entitled or called Steel Shield. This operation took place on the western border of Iraq in the villages that are, are very close to the Syrian borders, but from the Iraqi side. End of this operation, this is a very important story for you to hear. The top military com US commander mm, of this operation held a press conference. He was there, and I have a copy of this press conference in my embassy. And on the record, in front of all those journalists and, and, and media people, he was answering questions. And one of the uh, media people asked him, what was the result, the outcome of this operation? And he said, the US military officer commander said, we managed to kill 200 insurgents and capture 1,000 insurgents. 
And then another journalist asked him, out of those 1,200 insurgents, how many were non-Iraqis? And the astonishing question was, all 1,200 insurgents were Iraqis. Not a single one of them was a non-Iraqi. I'm not claiming that there are no non-Iraqi elements in Iraq today. My claim is that they are a very marginal minority. The, even, even the United States administration today accepts that the insurgency in Iraq is mainly an Iraqi insurgency. And this is why, because of at least our public diplomacy engagement with the international media and the diplomatic corps, and because we were publicly telling the story to the world that we don't believe the US administration about us allowing insurgents to go to, through these borders. Actually, we offered the United States assistance on this, and they refused. And because of the, the statements by their top military officers in Iraq, they are, we are not hearing these stories about Syria anymore. It does not mean that uh, suddenly they have fallen in love with Syria. Actually, they have not forgiven us yet for our opposition to the war in Iraq. But they have forgotten about us. Because as you know, today this administration is busily engaged in other issues, like the victory of Hamas, like Iran's nuclear program. And they have forgotten about Syria. But it does not mean that they have forgiven Syria. And yes, you have mentioned that today there is a US embargo on Syria, and this is, of course, causing us some troubles, uh, hindering our efforts to develop Syria. But we are living with this reality. We still have good uh, working relationship with Europe and the rest of the world, Asia, China, Russia, India. It's all right. We're managing. Um, sir. That's a question about President Bashar al-Assad of Syria. Bashar al-Assad is, is an ophthalmologist by training. He, he studied medicine at the University of Damascus, and then he went to England for, uh, to specialize in, in, in eye treatment. He's a, he's a young man. His picture passed among the pictures that you probably have seen. I, I, as an ambassador, I don't like to praise him a lot. But at least I can claim the following, because I have known him uh, very very well, and I have met with him many times in the past uh, five years. He's a, a very modest person, mild-mannered, and, um, and, and he really wants to do something for Syria. He really wants Syria to open up and develop, and uh, he, he understands that Syria is, is faced by too many challenges and tremendous problems, and, and he has a sincere desire uh, uh, for Syria to... to, to Develop economically so, uh, and also not only the economy, education, politics, uh, uh, civil society, everything. But, but the challenges are tremendous. And, uh, and it's not been a fair world for him. Once he became president, he started have, uh, facing one international major crisis after the other. September 11, the war in Afghanistan, the second intifada, the war on Iraq, uh, the, the Lebanese crisis. <laughs> You, it, it's not been an easy time for us in Syria in the past five years. Would this, uh, do you need more? Uh, okay. Sir. You mentioned the Syrian challenge that the Syrian conflict poses to Lebanon, and I'd invite a comparison to sectarian conflict in Iraq. Now, when the United States leaves Iraq, 
what role would you anticipate from the neighboring countries, Syria included, to uh, stabilize Iraq? Um, as far as Syria is concerned, we have very strong ties to the Iraqi people, historic relations. Um, and we have uh, extremely good relations with almost all, all, uh, uh, all uh, uh, communities in Iraq. Um, as I re said during the, uh, at the beginning of this presentation, Syria uh, had terrible relations with the regime of Saddam Hussein. And because most of the Iraqi leaders today in Iraq are opponents to Saddam Hussein, historically they had excellent relationship with Syria, uh, including the Kurds. At, at least, at least we can claim that we belong to this region. And, and they, they regard us like we are their brothers and sisters. So our claim would be, of course, uh, we can play a positive role in trying to calm down the situation among all those communities and bringing them together. Actually, we did bring them together at one point. We invited them to a, a dialogue conference in Syria. And I believe that uh, uh, now that the United States is taking a less intransigent attitude towards Syria, we are, uh, uh, we are capable now to play a more positive role in Iraq. Forget about your presence in Iraq. Forget about how we regard your presence in Iraq. Whether we like it or not is unimportant. It is our strategic interest, our national interest, to, to stabilize the situation in Iraq. As, you, as I have mentioned at the beginning, if Iraq spirals, spirals towards civil war, this will have terrible repercussions on the harmonial, harmonious coexistence of Syrian communities. We don't want this to happen. It is, it is in our national interest to help the Iraqis uh, sort out their problems and differences. We believe in Syria that your presence in Iraq is a factor that is creating a rift among the Iraqis. The Sunnis don't want you there. The Shiites are divided. The Muqtada Sadr faction don't want you there. Other factions think that you should be there for a time. What we believe in Syria is the following. We don't ask the United States to immediately leave Iraq tomorrow. We don't say this. What we say in Syria is the following. Let the United States come out with a, a well-publicized, clear-cut roadmap, a plan, a plan for the withdrawal of your troops from Iraq. This should not happen in a fortnight. You can, as an example, say, here is our plan for our exit strategy from Iraq. Within six months from now, we will redeploy all our troops outside of major cities in Iraq and concentrate them in, in, in military bases here and there. And then, as an example, I'm just giving you, and within one year, uh, uh, we will start reducing the number of our troops in Iraq. Within 18 months, we will only have uh, one or two divisions. And then, as an example, three years' time from now, there will be no military, U.S. military presence in Iraq. This will help a lot, convince the Iraqis who have doubts about your presence in Iraq that you are really serious about your original claim that you went there to liberate Iraq and introduce freedom and democracy in Iraq. You have to accept the fact that not all Iraqis really believe that you went there for the noblest of reasons. Some of them, they might be misled, they might be ignorant and stupid, but they believe that you came there to occupy their country. They look at what's happening in Iraq today. They are not very happy. Uh, as an example, everybody in the Arab world knows that today the United States is building six military bases in Iraq. Four of them 
are ordinary military bases, American military bases, similar to the military bases you would find in Germany and Italy. But two of them happen to be the largest two military bases on the surface of Earth. And the Iraqis look at this and they ask themselves, the Americans are saying, said they came to free us and liberate us, and they are leaving. Why, on, for God's sake, are they building these huge military bases in Iraq? And they are building it right now. They, are not, they have not even completed building it. And because they are not highly educated and not, they are not very sophisticated and they are not very intelligent, they do not understand your noblest of reasons. They think that you really came there to occupy them. Prove to them that this is untrue. Tell them, hey, guys, we really came for your own sake, out of a, a purely altruistic motive. We came to introduce freedom and democracy in Iraq. This is our plan. We have toppled Saddam Hussein. We agree that we never found WMDs in Iraq, but at least, and we have built you, introduced democracy in Iraq, and look, we are leaving. It will help stabilize the situation in Iraq. The Iraqis will be able to tell the other Iraqis, stop this level of violence, calm down a little bit. You, you don't need to get killed while you are trying to kill an American soldier. Look, they are leaving. This is their roadmap. They have published it. They have publicized it. And they will do, implement it. And once you start actually implementing it, phase one of it, it will make a tremendous effect on Iraq. This is what we believe in Syria. The, the lady in the back, then I will come back to you. Iran. <laughs> I love this question. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Wherever I go, I'm being asked this question. What does Syria think of Iran's nuclear intentions and program. And I have to be honest with you, I am usually flabbergasted by this question, and I'll explain to you why. We in Syria, we in Syria today, have a part of Syria occupied by a country, a state, Israel, which happens to have the world's, please listen carefully to me, the world's per cap, largest per capita nuclear arsenal. If you divide the number of nuclear heads that Israel have on the population of Israel, you will understand what I mean. And Israel is our next door neighbor, and they occupy a part of Syria. And we are not supposed to worry about the actually existing nuclear capability of Israel. But we in Syria, and we do not even have common borders with Iran. Iran is 10,000 kilometers away from us. We are supposed to worry and be concerned about a potential nuclear Iranian program that might eventually lead to Iran obtaining nuclear weapons. But I will tell you our position, because I happen to be the representative of Syria. Uh, of course, we in Syria, we worry a lot about the, the, the uh, uh, what's the word, dissemination of nuclear and WMDs in the Middle East. The proliferation, thank you. And we don't want this to be the case in the Middle East. We want the Middle East to be totally free from all these weapons. What we did is, and I hope you will hear this story, we, the Syrians, the rogue state, we went to the United Nations Security Council and we submitted officially a draft resolution hmm, submitted by Syria declaring the whole Middle East 
a region totally free from all weapons of mass, mass destruction, nuclear, chemical, and biological. The whole Middle East, including Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, and Israel. Guess what happened? In the very same day we submitted, this is on the records of the United Nations. I'm not, you know, create, fabricating stories. The very same day we submitted this draft resolution, immediately the United States delegation to the United Nations vetoed it. Immediately it killed it. Within three hours, and their comment was, this is not a suitable time for such a resolution. I don't want to be harshly critical of the US policies towards the Middle East, but put yourself in our place. We, we see a double standard approach. If the United States doesn't like WMDs, then help us make our region free of all WMDs. But saying that Israel has the right to have WMDs, while every other country will be severely penalized for even thinking of obtaining WMDs in one day is unfair. This is what we believe in. Our position in Syria today is the following. But we understand that it will not happen because it is unrealistic. Probably the Iranian nuclear crisis will convince the United States that this is the best time possible to bring all parties in the Middle East and tell them, look, whether you like it or not, we really need to, to make this Middle East free of all those WMDs. You know what? You went to war in Iraq to free our region from WMDs. It is something of importance to you. Some of your young soldiers are tragically being killed today in Iraq for this noble principle. Why don't you enforce it? Enforce it. Help us at least enforce it. What actually happened is that you vetoed it in the Security Council. Sir. Um, let me allow me to respectfully uh, disagree with your premise. I don't think today the essence of the conflict between the Arabs and the Israelis is the eliminationists, as you have described them, on both sides. 
please do remember, if you were watching the recent Israeli elections, many parties were advocating the transfer, kicking out all of the Palestinians from Israel and the West Bank and Gaza. You have extremists on both sides. I, we have to accept this. But they are on the fringe. And I will elaborate on this. But let me at least be honest with you and tell you that the Arabs have evolved considerably on this. I can't deny that at one point in the history of our struggle against Israel, we used to say we will kill, we will kick all the Jews into the sea. But that, those were, you know, this is not the case anymore throughout the whole Arab world. Uh, today, every Arab state, without a single exception, has joined. They have joined the Beirut summit meeting in, uh, four years ago when we, all Arab states, jointly in, uh, invited Israel to allow the Palestinians to have their independent, sovereign, free state and withdraw from the Golan ex in exchange in exchange for peace, recognition by all Arab states for, with Israel and the exchange of the diplomatic relations. We repeated this initiative four times in the four, past four years in every Arab summit meeting, including the latest one in Sudan. Do we have extremists on both the sides? Yes, we do, but they are unimportant. The core issue today is the following. There is a nation that happens to be the Palestinian nation that is, has been suffering from terrible occupation, from terrible subhumane conditions for the past 50 years. And they need their right to be recognized as a, as a nation. They need, just like every other nation under the sun, a sovereign, independent, viable state. They have suffered too long, too long, and too much. And probably this ongoing Middle East conflict will never end until Israel will recognize that they have the right to have their independent, sovereign, viable state. As I told you, we have evolved a lot, but let me surprise you by telling you this. Even the Israelis have evolved a lot. I don't want to praise Israel being the, the uh, ambassador of Syria, but let me remind you of some historical facts. Go and read the memoirs of Golda Meir, the late prime minister of Israel. They are published in English. They are available here in America. In her memoirs, she disputes the fact that the Palestinian people exist in the first place. She says there is no such thing as the Palestinian people. This is a myth. This is a lie. Israel has evolved a lot. Israel doesn't say today we don't. This is a big lie. Don't believe those Arab bastard liars. The Palestinians do not exist. No. Israel today recognizes that the Palestinians are there. They, Israel has evolved. The problem today is not whether the Palestinians deserve to have a, a state or not. The problem today is, as far as Israel is concerned, they want to grab the maximum possible uh, uh, land from the, this uh, promised as free, independent Palestinian state. This is the issue today. It's not anymore whether the Palestinians exist or not on that side and on other, our side whether we should eliminate Israel or not. And the fact that, as I have mentioned in the past 15 years, we were on the verge of signing a peace agreement with Israel tells you that uh, we do not believe in eliminating eliminatory uh, ideologies anymore. Actually, while Sharon was in office in the past four years, refusing to engage Syria, Syria publicly re-invited Israel at least five or six times on the highest possible level by President Bashar al-Assad himself, invited Israel to re-engage in peace talks with Israel. 
This is the only, as far as we are concerned, this is the only exit for us from this situation. There's no other solution. Give us back our Golan and let's have a normal, uh, peaceful coexistence with each other. I personally believe, as a human being, as an individual, that peace is inevitable between the Israelis and the Arabs. Once the Israelis realize that they cannot depend on their sheer military superiority forever, and once they re really realize that if they want their grandchildren to live in peace with our grandchildren, they need to allow us to reach a fair, comprehensive peace with them. They need to allow the Palestinians to have their state, and they need to allow us to regain our Golan. I think peace will be attained. And I think it will happen. It was on the verge of happening, and history will repeat itself. History goes through cycles. This is my personal belief as a human being, not as an ambassador. Sir. Uh, um, that's very easy. I am very critical of my government. But of course, usually an ambassador is not supposed to play the devil's advocate. I can tell you this. Go and switch on Fox News and you will hear <laughs> amazingly beautiful stories about Syria. I don't need... Yesterday I was invited to give a similar speech at, uh, at uh, University of Colorado in Boulder which I did, but before my speech, a professor of sociology asked me to meet with his students. And the, the course he is teaching is called Critical Development, Critical Thinking in Development. And I was surprised, I told him, but what, what do I have to do with this course? And he said to me, I'll tell you what, my students are typical average Americans and they are uh, uh, prone to a massive, massive anti-Syrian campaign throughout the American media. And the image of Syria is so bad. And it would be so good to bring you the ambassador of Syria. He's not interested really in politics. And allow my students to hear a different perspective, a different version, and allow them to develop their critical thinking. I'm not asking you, by the way, to just to believe me. I'm just telling you, hear our side of the story. This is our side of the story. And it's up to you to verify what I was telling you or not. Now you are asking me to criticize Syria. This is not very conventional, but I have never been a conventional <laughs> ambassador. I was very critical of the Syrian uh, government and the Syrian regime prior to being appointed an ambassador. I'm not a member of the Syrian ruling party myself. Uh, most importantly, have you heard of the famous United Nations sponsored uh, human development report in the Arab world? This report was written by 100 Arab scholars uh, pinpointing and highlighting the failures of the Arab society in general. I am one of the co-writers, so I'm not shying away from criticizing Syria and the Arab countries in general. We have three major deficiencies across the Arab world. This is what we wrote in this report, not only in Syria, across the Arab world. But then I will move from the general to the particular. First, we have a deficiency in knowledge. We need to transfer our societies to, uh, 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 to knowledge-based societies, something you have been very successful in doing. The United States ha can be criticized. I have been critical of US policies, but I admire the United States for its achievements in science and technology. 
for the great services it has rendered to the humanity and mankind. I'm not a fan of your foreign policy, but I admire a lot the achievements that you have achieved in humanities and in science and technology. This is one example. So we have a basic deficiency of knowledge across the Arab world. The second thing was the basic deficiency of political freedoms across the Arab world. Across the Arab world, without any single exception. And the third is, has to do with women empowerment. In our report, we advocated women empowerment in the Arab world, and we considered the status of women women in the Arab world completely unacceptable. Now, if I want to move from the general to the particular, you have to promise me that you will never tell anyone that the ambassador of Syria was standing here in Colorado Springs criticizing his own country. But I will do it. It's an intellectual debate. I don't mind. Um, I can claim that we have not done well in our education, in our uh, 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 in our uh, 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 objective to become a knowledge-based society. What we have done is the following. Um, we built too many schools in Syria and too many universities across Syria, and education, education is absolutely and totally free for all Syrians, from kindergarten till you get your PhD if you want to get a PhD. You don't pay a penny. And we ended up with a high percentage of uh, Syrians carrying certificates and degrees, but we paid a dear price quality-wise. And I was very critical of the Syrian educational system. Very critical. Because I think we have sacrificed quality for the sake of quantity. However, we have recognized this in the past five years, and we are trying to revitalize our uh, national uh, uh, educational system. This is one thing that we did not do well at all in. The other thing is political freedoms. I'm not going to claim to you now that Syria is, is the Switzerland of the Middle East, but I need to remind you that you have to be very careful when you discuss democracies in, uh, in other parts of the world. Let me remind you that democracy is an unattainable ideal, but different countries in the world vary in the level they have attained in their quest towards democracy. I will claim that probably, probably, I'm not sure about this, it's just for the sake of the argument, that Sweden today is probably more democratic than Italy. And Italy is definitely, definitely more democratic than Syria. I will also claim that the United States today is more democratic than it used to be 100 years ago, despite the fact that you have issued uh, Patriot Acts 1 and 2. Remember the civil rights movement. Remember the emancipation of slaves. You have evolved and you will continue to evolve, but you will suffer from setbacks and you are suffering from setbacks right now. The same applies to Syria. We want to evolve into a more democratic system, into a more politically open system, a more participatory system. But we don't want to do this the way you have done it in Iraq. We want to evolve into democracy from within, not from without. You can help us do this, not by sending your troops, but by lifting the embargo against us, as an example, by actually providing aid and assistance to the Syrian educational institutions, to, to, to the civil society in Syria, to the NGOs in Syria. You, you really can help Syria evolve into democracy. If you spend 1% of the budget of war you are spending on, in Iraq, 
on civil projects in countries like Syria and Egypt and Jordan, you will make a tremendous, a remarkable difference in our region. 1% of the war budget, only 1%. Is that too much for the asking? Yet, as I have said at the beginning, we really don't want any financial assistance from the United States. We, we are managing our development challenges by ourselves. And it's not that bad. It's not excellent, but it's not that bad. But we want to evolve. I am not happy with the status of political freedoms in Syria today. But at least I can claim that the margins of, of liberties in Syria are being expanded non continuously and have been expanded remarkably in the five, past five years. And we have not stopped. We will continue to do this. Very soon, for the first time in our uh, recent history, we'll, we will have a new law that will allow uh, all political parties to freely form in Syria with one catch. I will tell you what is the catch, and I hope you will understand it. And this law is already being discussed and debated in Syria today. We already, I already have a, a draft copy of this law at, in, in my embassy. Uh, this law will allow the free formation of political parties in Syria so that they can participate in the forthcoming uh, parliamentary elections scheduled for 2007. I'm not claiming that because of this law and these elections, Syria will become once more the Switzerland of the Middle East. My claim is that this is a quantum leap forward. At least we are moving forward, and we will continue to do this. You might be unhappy about it. I am unhappy about it. But I am realistic. I understand that there are too many considerations that should be taken into account when a society move, moves from an, a closed, pol politically closed society to an openly, uh, a politically open society. I will comment on this Syrian new law, and you will understand some of our fears. This new party law in Syria would allow all parties to freely form on one condition that they do not base their parties on sectarian or ethnic agendas. Any parties that should form today in Syria, according to this new form, should have a national platform and a national agenda. We do not want to repeat the examples of what's happening today in Iraq and what has been the case in Lebanon for the past 50 years. So yes, there will be a new law in Syria that will allow political parties to freely function in Syria, provided they are not a, a Kurdi and a Sunni and a Alawi and a Dirzi and an Ismaili party, because this will cause us uh, terrible, terrible problems. And this is one aspect of the sort of challenges that are, are not well understood here in the United States. And it is uh, an example of things that we are not doing very well and that uh, of, of, of our desire at least to move forward. I don't want to go into a long list of our, uh, our bad things. I, 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 can, I, I don't shy of doing this. I, I have to be honest. I can be very critical. You can be very critical of the United States in many things. I came here to discuss the major crisis of the Middle East. But I will not shy away from discussing any problem that is a purely Syrian problem, because uh, the problems won't disappear by uh, refusing to discuss them. They are there, and we have to face them. We should not deny them in Syria. This is what I believe in. And we should do something in Syria, for Syria, for our Syria, for our people, in order to resolve these problems. The lady here.
Yes, Syria has had a tradition of welcoming any refugees throughout its history. Ask the Armenians, they will tell you their story. Ask the Circassians, the Albanians, the Palestinians would, would tell you that there is no other Arab country that give them the same rights that they enjoy in Syria. And the same is happening with the Iraqis. If an, according to Syrian uh, laws, any Arab can come to Syria and he does not or she does not need a visa, and they can uh, reside there permanently by merely being an Arab citizen. But having said this, I have mentioned some other non-Arab nationalities, like the Turkomans, the Circassians, the Albanians, the Armenians, who are living happily and uh, in a prosperous way in Syria. One of the things that I should not shy away of, you asked me to be critical of my country. Now I, I will try to boast a little bit. I'm very proud about one thing, about one thing in Syria that really makes me very proud. We are very tolerant towards minorities, and we, are, we enjoy an unprecedented an unknown level of religious freedoms in Syria that cannot be seen anywhere else in the Arab world. Let me give you this example, and you, you will understand why at least I have the right to be proud of Syria and this particular issue. Syria is predominantly a Muslim country. 80% of the Syrians are Muslims, but we have 20% uh, of the Syrians are Christians. In Syria, we do not tolerate our Christian community. We consider the word tolerate, tolerance, derogatory. We cherish our Christian heritage in Syria. We consider Syria one of the cradles of Christianity. And we are very proud about this. And one thing that is not well known is the following. Every single Christian holiday in Syria is a national holiday for all of Syria, Christians and Muslims alike. Syria is the only Arab country, the Muslim country that can boast of this. Even to make it more uh, 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 unique, I will tell you the following. Half of the Syrian Christians follow the Antiochian Orthodox Church, and half of the Syrian Muslims are Catholics, and they do not follow the same calendar for some religious events, like Easter. So we end up with two Easter holidays in Syria, two Easter holidays in Syria that are national public holidays for all of Syria. We do this because we want to, to, to emphasize, emphasize uh, the fact that we all groups in Syria live harmoniously with each other. This is very good for the Syrian uh, uh, harmonious concord. It is not very good for the Syrian economy, but we are doing this. So at least I, I can boast that uh, Syria has been a haven for uh, minorities and for refugees from across the region. Uh, uh, the Christianity in Syria is thriving. When I have uh, uh, displayed some of the churches and monasteries in Syria, but you have to understand when you go to visit those monasteries and, and churches, it's not only Christian Syrians who go and visit. It's also Muslim Syrians. We all go and we visit. And we are very proud of the fact that Syria is one of the cradles of Christianity. As a Syrian Muslim, I, I, I like this a lot. At least I can say, yes, we have many problems in Syria, we, and probably we have a bad image in the United States. I can't disagree with you on this. Our image is bad in the United States. But at least I, I can assure you that we are very proud of our record of religious tolerance and harmonious coexistence. The gentleman back there. Yes, you. Um, when should we stop? Pardon? Well, if we do it, if you'd like. I mean, 
that's okay. The last question, question then. You promised me not to tell anybody, please. Yes, this is a twofold question. And I would like, thank you for your first comment supporting what I have said at the beginning. But what I want to say is the following. One of the by results, one of the byproducts of the war in Iraq, one of the reasons that we feared this war at the very beginning, even before it started, as I, we, I have said at the beginning of my presentation, we told our American counterparts, we believe in Syria that for you to invade Iraq, will fuel fundamentalism and extremism throughout the Middle East. And this is actually happening in Syria. Syria, as, have, as you have noticed from the slides, is a secular country. In Syria, a woman, a Damasian woman, has the right to, write, to wear a veil. Nobody will interfere with her. But she also has the right to go to a swimming pool and, and put on a bikini and swim in Damascus. Nobody will ask her questions. It's her personal choice. This is a secular state. In the past three years, fundamentalist groups started to spawn everywhere in Syria. Some of them are known as Jundisham, very similar to Al-Qaeda. This is one of the results of this ongoing war in Iraq. It's not only happening in Syria. It's happening across the Middle East, in Jordan, in Egypt, even in Saudi Arabia. It is happening. And of course, we are worried a lot in Syria about the rise of fundamentalism in Syria. And I think the best way to combat the rise of fundamentalism in a country like Syria is to, to focus more and more on enlightened education and to open up politically more and more. Personally, I believe that one of the fundamental reasons that Syria should become more democratic and open up more and more is to allow people to find legitimate, legitimate means of expressing their political affiliations. They do, they do not get recruited by underground extremist fundamentalist movements. Uh, but this is one of the problems that today we are facing in Syria. I agree with you. Extremism, extremism and fundamentalist groups are on, on the rise in Syria. But they have not become a threat to our society or a threat to the state. We are trying to deal with them. This is on one hand. On the other hand, you have asked us if we are under pressure to develop a nuclear program. <laughs> We're not that crazy if we even think of it. <laughs> if we even think of it, the cruise missiles will start liberating Damascus very soon. We have a beautiful city. <laughs> we want to preserve our city. Thank you very much. <laughs>
just want to, uh, again, express our appreciation 